uh, just for that, Richard has to sing two songs next time. So I uh, love, love to hear him sing. And then I come up with an opening line like this, that uh, I think I've discovered why it's so hard to live a Christian life. I think I've figured it out. It has to do with having too much underwear. It really does. It has, it has a lot to do with that. Uh, and I'll explain that to you. <laughs> I'll explain that to you. It's funny how when you do things, you don't realize what a life lesson you're learning when you do these things. And I, I know I've referred to my couple of backpacking trips I took when I was a younger guy back, you know, years and years ago in my 20s. We had this CPA in our church, good godly man, had two boys, and they were backpackers. They went all the time. And on, in, in the summertime, they would invite some of their friends to go along with them on the trip. And so on this first trip, they invited me and a good friend of mine to go with them. And so we started uh, just north of Springer Mountain in Georgia, and we were going to walk all the way, or we did walk all the way up to Fontana Dam. It's 100 miles. Fontana Village in North Carolina is the gateway of the Great Smoky Mountains. Now, Shelby, who was the guy that was leading the trip, really was an expert in this kind of stuff. And he took us under his wing to teach us how to be backpackers. And he took us out with packs on our back, walking for weeks before we went to get into physical shape. He taught us how to read the trail markers in case we got separated from each other. We could eventually find our way back to each other, which, of course, I got separated from everybody. And thank goodness I knew how to read the trail markers. He gave us a list of things to put in our backpacks, and he even taught us how to pack things in the pack for the best weight distribution and for the best... Uh, uh, maximize all the space in our packs and he told us he kept reminding us what you put in your pack you have to carry on your back that sounds good to me you know I was a young guy in my 20s I was fairly strong I thought this this thing's gonna be pretty cool he reminded us that your perfect pack weight should be around 40 pounds gave us a list of things so I went home and I looked at the list of things that he gave us and I thought well you know these are good suggestions but I probably need a little bit more because he doesn't understand that I like to be clean. And so I want to wear a new shirt every day and a new pair of pants every day and a new pair of underwear every day. So I'll pack a little extra. And so, I mean, how much can it weigh, right? So I packed a few extra. We track shorts. That's what the guys wore back then. Going to be in the mountains. It's going to be warm. So I packed a few extra pair of track shorts. How much do they weigh, right? They're not that heavy. T-shirts, that's what we wore with the track shorts. I, I put some T-shirts in there, a few extra T-shirts. And you never know when you're going to fall down and get muddy. And there's nothing worse in life than wet underwear, right? So got to have plenty of that. So I packed plenty of that. So the day before the trip, as we took our packs up to his house so that we could pack them in the van so that the next day we could leave after work and go straight on up to the, uh, the mountains and get started on our trip, and uh, went up to his house. Now, he was a smart guy. He had his scales out. And he says, okay, now we need to weigh your packs to make sure that you're within good range. You don't want you to hurt your back. So I set my pack on there, and it was just north of 52 pounds. Supposed to be 40. And he said, you know, Randy, you probably ought to go through there and take out a few things. I go, nah, not me, man. I said, whoop, whoop, don't feel heavy at all. Look at this. I can care. It's not a problem. He says, Randy, you really need to go through the pack and take some of this stuff out. It's going to get heavy on you. I said, nah, I'll be fine. He says, well, you're, you're within the weight tolerance, so that's cool. Pack my stuff up, 
Next day we got in the van. We went up to North Georgia. It was late in the day when we got there, so we just walked about a mile in to pick up the Appalachian Trail itself, and we made camp. Everything was fine. Pack felt good. Next morning we got up. It was our first day to walk 10 miles. 10 miles don't sound too awfully far if you're walking on flat ground. But see, I don't know if you noticed this or not, up in North Georgia, they made that flat ground go flat like this. And we had to walk up these hills. And I know they're not the Rocky Mountains. I know they're not 12,000 foot peaks. But a 3,000 foot peak, when you're starting at 1,000 feet and you just keep doing this for an hour going up this hill, at the time you get to the top, you're pretty tired. And the killer is that when you come down on the other side, coming down is worse than going up because it eats on the front of your legs. We walked 10 miles. At the end of the day, we made camp. My feet hurt, legs hurt, back hurt, rear end hurt, arms hurt, neck hurt, chest hurt, stomach hurt. I don't know anything that didn't hurt that day. And we sat around the campfire. We got our food cooked. And then I started thinking, don't really need those t-shirts. And I fed the fire with my t-shirts. Don't really need those shorts. And I burned those shorts. And you know what? Wet underwear ain't so bad. <laughs> I, tossed that wet under, I tossed that clean, dry underwear on top of that fire and burned everything. Because, see, there's no way to mail it home up there. And what you pack in, you have to pack out. The only way to get rid of it was to burn it. And that is exactly what I did. I burned it all. That night, we had the best bonfire because my other guys were doing the same thing that I was doing. And the killer to all of this was, is when we got through and we leaned back and we're resting and we started thinking, what we had left was exactly what Shelby told us we should have taken in the first place. Hmm. What happened? You know, looking back on it, it's a fairly simple thing. When we started out the journey, when we started out planning the trip to go backpacking, I was an office working, ball playing, outdoor, outdoors a young man who was going to go on a backpacking vacation. That's the way I looked at it. This is my vacation. I'm going on a backpacking vacation. But once I was on the trip, I repented. I had a change of heart. I became a backpacker. And I started thinking like a backpacker. In Paul's letter to Titus, Paul isn't talking to a man who is also a Christian. Paul is talking to a Christian. And there's a difference. There's a difference between a man who is also a Christian and a man who is a Christian. When I started my backpacking trip, I started it with the mindset that I was who I always was and I was just taking a trip. I was focused on the things that I focus on all the time. I was focused on making myself happy. I was focused on getting along like I normally do, just comfortable on a normal day, just going to live my life. I'm just going on vacation like any other day, going to a different place, going to see a few different things, have a few different new experiences. Life was going to be good. My goal was to live my life like I did every day, add this other thing to it, and then my life was going to be enriched by this experience. Haven't we heard people talk about our lives are enriched by these experiences? And that's the way I looked at this thing. That's what's going to happen. I believe that 99% of us on a daily basis 
Don't sit down and think and ponder that this is how we think about life. This is how we think about our lives. This is how we think about what goes on in our lives every day. If you were to look at your life and state what your life goal is, what would it be? Now, I realize we're in church, and your answer's got to have Jesus in church in it somewhere. So let's pretend we're not at church. Let's pretend we're sitting on the dock at a lake or on a boat or sitting in the backyard and we're looking at the flowers or whatever we do. Think about it for a second and think about if you stepped outside of yourself. If you stepped outside of yourself and watched yourself live, what would you say is the goal of your life? What are you working for? What, what is it that you're trying to accomplish, you're trying to do? And I suspect most of us would say that our goal is to work hard, raise a good family, live comfortably, and go to heaven when we die. I mean, when you net it out, take it down to its basic components. We want to work hard, raise a good family, retire comfortably, and go to heaven when we die. And part of that whole set is to become a Christian because becoming a Christian enriches our life. It teaches us right from wrong. It encourages us to help others. It teaches us to love life and to love each other. It teaches us to take care of the environment. It teaches us to take care of people around the world. Christianity is a good thing. It enriches my life. It's like me going on that backpacking trip. I live like I live every day, and one day I understand Christ is my Savior, and so I add Christianity into that life. It becomes another tool to get me where I'm wanting to go. Christianity becomes something to enrich my life. My ultimate goal doesn't change. I simply have a new tool to help me accomplish that ultimate goal. Now, in this fantastic theological statement that Paul's making in Titus, He mentions what the goal of a Christian's life is. He mentions our goal. This is the ultimate goal of the Christian. In verse 13 he says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the goal of the average person who has added Christianity to their life is to live a good life, to work hard, to raise their family, to have a comfortable retirement, and to go to heaven when they die. The goal of a Christian is to see Jesus. You hear the difference? Now how does that make a difference in our lives? The average person who has added Christianity to their life struggles every day. Trying to figure out how to do the things that we need to do to get by, to get to that comfortable retirement. I've, I've, for some reason this came up a couple of times this week. Maybe it came up for this moment. But let me tell you something. This was not in my game plan. I was not planning on being a preacher ever again in my life. It is not in my game plan. Do you know what my game plan was? My game plan was to figure out how to stay with AT&T employed until I was 62 years old. Because I knew they were going to lay me off at some point. All of you that work in corporate America, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I was going to find a way to stay employed until I was 62, at least. Goal was to get 66 years and four months, which is my Social Security age. But if I could make it to 62, it would be all right. I was going to get one more promotion. 
because I wanted to be a director because a director at AT&T is where the money starts coming. And that's where I wanted to go. And then when I hit 66 years and four months, I was going to punch my clock. We ought to have enough money to comfortably retire. We were going to be comfortably, comfortably retired. I was going to take my boat and go all over Lake Sinclair to learn every little nook and cranny of the lake that we live on. And then one day I was going to sit in my rocking chair and go to sleep and wake up and see Jesus. That was my plan. Well. Now here's the point. How is that different from anybody else's plan? Christianity informed me about how to get along in my life, but my goal wasn't to see Jesus. My goal at that time was to live a good life, raise a good family, make it to retirement, and then die and go home to heaven. That's what he's talking about here. Struggling to make ourselves happy. Where the Christian... Christian's goal is we want to see Jesus. And we want to do things that satisfy Jesus, that make Jesus proud, that make Jesus happy. And those things are easy to know. We sit here and go, Randy, that's hard. No, it's not. Read the Word. He tells us exactly what it is we need to know to do. And furthermore, when we look through this Scripture, He doesn't just put it in the Scripture. He says He's teaching us how to do this change our focus how to live wanting to see him and letting that handle everything else as opposed to handling everything else and putting a little Jesus on the side sort of like you do your dressing you know put a dressing on the side don't pour it on the salad just keep it over here how would this change what I want to do how would this change if I took my my goal and moved my goal from from working hard, raising a good family, retiring comfortably, and going to heaven when I die. If I change my goal from that, and I change my goal from that to wanting to see Jesus, what would that look like? Well, let's talk about, for a minute, teenagers. Let's talk about teenagers. 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds. Let's talk about these guys. They are at a time of their life when they have so much going on. They've got school, they've got tons of schoolwork, they've got to get their resumes perked up just right so that when they apply to college, they can get in the right college. They've got extracurricular activities, they've got church. In the middle of all this stuff now that we talk about, think about how their life is. Their bodies are changing. Girls go from little girls to women. Guys go from these scrawny little guys to guys with shoulders. The guys don't even talk the same. Before they start this process, they're all talking like this. And then one day you don't see them for a week or two and they come up and they say, Hello, my name's Bob. And you go, Whoa, where'd that come from? And we're experiencing it from this side. Imagine experiencing it from that side for them. And then in the middle of all that, they're expected to act grown up all the time and most of the time they do but every now and then I know that inside their heart they wish they could be just a kid one more time that mom or dad would throw them on the bed and tickle them and tell them everything's going to be all right and the kid don't have to worry for just a minute because they've got all kinds of stress on them being grown-ups tough and in the middle of all of that stuff 
they're supposed to choose what career they're going to do for the rest of their life. Now think about the idiocy of that. They're not old enough to drink. We got laws against that. They're not old enough to vote. We've got laws against that. They're not old enough to sign a contract because they're not wise enough yet to know about the contract. But you've got to know before you graduate what you're going to be for the rest of your life. Does that make walking around sense? And yet here we are with these kids. And let's think about how these two goals might affect the way these kids think. Goal number one, I want to raise a, have a happy life, raise a family, retire comfortably, go to heaven when I die. So now I've got to pick the right job. And there are so many out there. It's not like when, when I was a, uh, your, your daddy was a kid or your daddy's daddy was a kid and because he was a farmer, his son was a farmer or he was a carpenter, his son was a, a carpenter. Not that kind of world anymore. And I'm good at this and I really like this. But I'm sort of good at this. But everybody in the world is telling me that if I don't major in science, technology, engineering, or math, that I'm going to starve to death. I'm not going to have a good life. I don't know. And everybody's telling them that because everybody else's goal is for them to have, to raise, uh, to have a happy life, raise a family, retire comfortably when they die, and then go to, I mean, retire comfortably and go to heaven when they die. So they all got these goals of doing all these things and you got these 17 or 8 year olds, 18 year olds who are stressed to no end because from everything available in the universe, we're telling them they've got to choose one thing. You've got to choose one thing. Think about it. They could be, there's billions of jobs out there now. Pick one for the rest of your stinking life. Pick one. Or, that's goal number one. Goal number two. Goal number two is, all I want to do is see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. When the time comes, I want to see Jesus. Now, how does that change that? Well, let's see. God created me with gifts that I really like. With things that I'm really good at. The things that I really like to do. I think I'm going to try that for a while. And see where God takes me. Oh, Randy, you are teaching those kids to be irresponsible. Well, then you need to take that up with Jesus because that's the way he designed things. You see the difference? I hadn't got to pick the right stuff because he's going to take me where I need to go. I'm going to want to see him. With an ultimate life goal of seeing Jesus, we understand that the answer doesn't lie within us. The answer's not in here, in the human Randy. Listen to Paul's gigantic run-on sentence. You guys that teach English or grade papers that you have to see syntax in, I know you go absolutely bonkers. And when you deal with Paul, you've got to go crazy. Verse 11 through verse 14 is one gigantic sentence. One long run-on sentence. He would get a C if he were in school. He says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared. Grace of God is what? We know what that is. That's Jesus. That's the coming of Jesus. The grace of God. What did that grace do? 
He said bringing salvation for all people. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved. This isn't universalism. What this means is that he made deliverance available to everybody. Grace came, made deliverance available to everybody. It goes like Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an unarguable fact. It's salvation, redemption, deliverance is available to all people. Now, once that person is saved, what does the grace of God do then? If you want to know what God does, read the Bible. It's right here. It's what he's telling us. What does, this, what does the grace of God do then? Training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Notice the word here, training us. There's not an immediate change. You're not immediately different. He trains you. We're trained by that grace of God, which is the Holy Spirit. We're trained by the grace of God to make conscious decisions, to not do ungodly things, to turn away from worldly passions, or to put it in language that we would all use. He's training us not to put all this mess into our lives. That's what he says. He, that's what the Holy Spirit's doing with you. He's training you to not choose to put all of that mess in your life. And then there's more training. Training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Right now, this minute, in the life that we live every day, God's Spirit is training us to be self-controlled. Some of us need it more than others. But that's what he's training us to do. Be self-controlled, to be disciplined, to make right choices in what we do every day. He's training us. And then he says he's also training us to live upright. That's another word for being just. What he's training us in simple words to do is to be able to play well with others. Got a lot of work to do there. But he's, one, he's training us to treat people the way God would treat people. And the Holy Spirit is training us to live godly lives. Other words here used are reverent, devoted lives. Lives that are lived with the ultimate goal of seeing Jesus. The ultimate goal of seeing Jesus. Not retiring comfortably, although that may be a part of his plan, but to see him. Now we've read the next part talked about that a minute ago, but I want to put it in context. He says, the grace of God has brought salvation, is teaching us to quit making choices that will drive us away from God, and instead make choices that will make us better, will help others, and will honor God. And I would add the words here, as we, as we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It might be rephrased this way. As you're waiting for your blessed hope. Now let's talk about blessed hope real quick. There's other words for blessed hope. Do y'all remember a couple of years ago, and maybe it was just the group that I was with, that I hung around with, but we were all trying to find our bliss? Do y'all remember that? Is that a phrase that even rings a bell? I don't, I don't see much recognition in your eyes, so I guess it was my crowd there. But everybody was trying to achieve their bliss. Well, their bliss is the blessed hope that we're waiting for here. Another word for it is happiness. Another word is our delight. Another word is our glory. As we are waiting for our bliss, while we are waiting, God is teaching us to be that good person that we always wanted to be. When we understand what our goal, I mean, when we look at our original goal, what we're saying is we want to be a good person. 
And what the Scripture is telling us here is that's what God wants too. He just wants to teach us how to be that. Now what's God's purpose? What does He get out of this? You know, nobody does anything without wanting something out of it, right? What does God get out of this? Verse 14, Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for Himself a people of His own possessions who are zealous for good works. He redeemed us. He fixed us. He removed our brokenness. He bought us back from the death and decay that we purchased at the Garden of Eden so that he would have people who would be excited and passionate about doing the good works that he had planned for them to do from the beginning of the world in order to change the world. Now, I use that phrase a lot, change the world. I want to change the world. Got big plans. Make First Baptist Church of Grey 25,000 people, which would be pretty good because there's only like 20,000 people in Jones County. So we got people coming from everybody and they all come to First Baptist Church. It's not the point. Jesus started with 12 folks. And look at what he did. And we've been averaging in, in church somewhere between 350 and a little over 400. If all of us had our minds on wanting to see Jesus, how would we change the world? How would we change the world? What would the world around Gray look like if that's what we were? In verse 15, Paul tells Titus to declare these things. Focus on declare them to the church. He uses the word to exhort, which means to encourage the church. But then when he says rebuke, his focus turns outside the church. And he says rebuke with all authority. And then he says the five words that caught my eye and drew me to this passage to start with. The five words were, let no one disregard you. With your goal on seeing Christ... And your life of being trained by the best teacher ever, in your learning to make good godly choices, and passing by the choices that will bring mess to your life, in your learning to be self-controlled and just in your dealings with people and reverent toward God, in all of this, when people start messing with you about your faith, rebuke them and do not let them disregard you. Don't let them blow you off. Live your life so that they have no choice but to recognize that you are not a kook, you are not crazy, there is something different about you, and what causes you to have that difference is you have a personal trainer, and the personal trainer is the Holy Spirit of God himself. The scripture says so. There's one more little tidbit I left out here. Why does this process seem so hard? Why is it so difficult? Well, there's one of two things going on here. The first thing is, is what is your goal? What is your goal? If your goal is to want to live a good life, raise good children, re retire comfortably, and go to heaven when you die, you're still trying to do all this stuff under your own power. You need to fix your goal a little bit. Our goal is to see Jesus. But another reason the process seems so hard is the word training. Some of you understand the word training. Some of you do physical training. You understand the word training. The word here, training, means training with discipline. It means that when you do it right, there's praise involved. And when you don't do it right, there are consequences to not doing it right. 
We have trouble with that concept because we give everybody a participation trophy no no matter if they scored the winning touchdown or if they stunk so bad you were afraid to put them on the field. Everybody gets a trophy. But we all know to be the best at what you do, you have to have a teacher who is good, who you will listen to, and who you will do what that teacher says. You got a teacher. The teacher says that you have the Holy Spirit of the Almighty God living within you, training you. What do you do? You listen to what he says. You work with it to the best of your abilities. And you watch what happens. The teacher is training us. I think I heard a bell ring. I think school's in session. It's time for us to learn. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray this morning. Lord, so much of this is a mystery. It's that faith thing you keep throwing at us. We look at these things and we, and we think to ourselves that, how do I do this? How do I, how do I trust that you're going to take me to the right place? How do I know I'm going to get to the right place? I'm very accustomed to handling everything on my own, thank you very much. What does it look like to want to see you and have you do things in my life? If I understand the words that you gave Paul to give to Titus, to give to us this morning, you're saying, if you'll take the first step, I'll train you. Help us, Father. Encourage us, grow our faith, make us strong. Help us to change the world. Help us to change our world. In Jesus' name, amen.